Moon Pig. Hello, world, and welcome to the latest edition of the Moon Pig podcast. And our guests on the pod this week is Haley and Jason, who are going to be talking to us about their learnings from spinning up an innovation project at Moonpig. So we're going to go through a few principles of what they learned from doing this project. And maybe we'll kick off by Haley and Jason. Do you want to introduce yourselves? I can jump in first here. So hi, everyone. Uh, so uh, I'm a senior engineer in the Moonshots team. Um, we'll dig in a bit deeper as to what the team's all about later on. But we are here to focus on uh, innovating and, and trying out new ideas and and understanding the the value of a particular idea. Um, I've been with Moonpig for coming up two years, and I've got an engineering background that goes back to 2007. And uh, what has been predominantly a, a product delivery background, these two years have, have been a complete switch for me to understand um, what it really means to deliver proof of concepts and, and work particularly lean. So I've got a lot of sharings to, to go through. Hi, everyone. My name's Hayley Catlin-Weaver. I'm a principal product designer here at Moonpig in the cards division. I've been at Moonpig for three years now, which is bonkers. It's gone so fast. And in that time, I've worked in three different squads. Uh, but now as a principal, I work more horizontally in the business. And um, I'm co-leading a business-wide OKR alongside a lead product manager. Uh, one of the other things I do is work on the mid to long-term product vision and strategy as well. And for those of you that don't know what a principal does, um, my week typically looks like currently having OKR meetings to set milestones for the next half, running ideation and planning sessions with individual teams and squads, uh, do lots of upskilling and pairing with other designers and even other teams such as brand and marketing. And I've got a bit of a focus at the moment on creating playbooks and ways of working uh, to really help kind of further improve and evolve um, our content design, uh, our go-to-market strategy and our daily, you know, interaction design. Wow, cool. And now I want to do a podcast about that, but that's not the subject of today. Um, I want to take you both back to when you actually first started on the project that we're going to be talking about today. Um, Moonshots at the time, as I understand it, was a team that was focused kind of building proof of concepts of new ideas, trying things out. What was the idea behind having a team like that? I guess it started, um, so I just joined Moonpig at the time and they just spent a few years replatforming and doing lots of really heavy technical work. Um, so as a result, the squads had less kind of immediate capacity for growth work while they were managing that big replatform. So there was some kind of really big bets that the business was super keen to validate. Um, so I think that's why we spun up this innovation team so that we could basically kind of carve out a bit of runway and capacity so we could still pursue those big bets whilst we were doing that other uh, big piece of replatforming. So that's how it all started. Yeah, so so to extend upon that, we were spun up to, to run with those ideas, to, to test and identify their values. Haley said there's lots of great ideas going around Moonpig and we wanted to see if these ideas that people were having are the things that our customers were A, interested in and B, is it actually something they would use? So. We were set up to create these lean proof of concept projects to put out in front of, of real people. We wanted to get their feedback and ultimately validate if these ideas had value for the long term. And if they didn't, well, no worries. We, we tried it. We'll put it to one side and we'll try something a bit different. But if it did have legs, that's when it opened the door then for collaboration with our other teams. So 
by us demonstrating that an idea is not just innovative, but also viable, it enabled others in Moonpig to get involved and contribute their experience. So you could almost think of it like laying the laying the groundwork. So we kick the journey off by showing that an idea has potential and then other teams can get involved, then look to take the reins, leveraging their knowledge and skills to refine, expand and, and ultimately scale that product. That's cool. And I guess in that kind of situation, I'm thinking about, you know, lean principles like cost of delay and stuff, that time is of the essence. How long did these proof of concepts usually take to build? It's a really good question. Um, There's one project that we've got in mind today. um, And actually, it was the first one that we ever did. And I think when we first kicked it off, we we kind of felt in six weeks, we wanted to get to a point where we'd know You'd have an indication of product market fit um, and have a bit of a proof of concept that we've got some validation around. Uh, we actually took many pivots. We were a new team forming. We had new roles in the team as well. So we we're figuring lots of stuff out. So I can tell you, we didn't quite do it in six weeks. Um, and we ended up building something that was production ready. And actually it took closer to a year. So I think we can definitely reiterate on, um, on that whole process. And that's kind of why we've We've reflected on these these five principles that we're going to share with everyone today. So hopefully we can get you and us closer to that six week <laughs> six week globe. Famously, Google tried to do this in a five day sprint, base camp in the six week cycle, and so on. Um, I wouldn't say there's a right or a wrong. I think it all depends on the business, the challenge, and the team that you've got. The goal is pace, but whether that's five days or six weeks, it really depends on many factors. That's brilliant. And I think what's really going to come out of this conversation, I hope, is the learnings you took away, because while you anticipate something might, might take six weeks, who knows what's going to happen? And the fact it took a year, that doesn't really matter. It's the learnings you got on the way. OK, so from working in this manner, you've come up with a set of principles that you've learned from this initial initial project. Could you tell us what that initial project was and what the feature you were trying to build and why that felt good as, as an initial stab at this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first feature that we worked on was video cards. And what that actually is, is when I'm sending you a birthday card, let's say, for instance, even a physical one in the post, um, I'll get asked in the journey if I'd like to add a video to it. So I can record one or upload, you know, a memory that I have saved in my phone. And we'll basically print a QR code inside the card. So that when you receive it as the recipient, you'll open your card and be like, oh, what's this? Scan it with your phone and you get to see your lovely surprise video from me and the sender. Um, And customers absolutely love this. It's one of our most popular features. And once you've sent one video card, you keep coming back to send more. So it's really important uh, for Moonpig. And I guess the cool story with it was that Moonpig run lots of hackathons. And I think there's other podcast episodes on this. And we often come up with lots of really amazing ideas. And like with anything, it's, you know, you have to then figure out how do you schedule this? How do you build it? How do we validate it amongst all the other work we're doing in BAU? Um, so this was one of the ideas that came out of that hackathon. And yeah, we built a little innovation team around it to really test it and understand its value and its worth. And yeah, that's how we came up with these principles. Nice. So the hackathon gave you the idea this little team you span up, proved that it was actually a goer, and then fun and profit, as they say, which is cool. (laughs) And with that in mind, should we start looking at the principles that you formulated as a result of this exercise? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'll call them all out first. We've got five of them. And the first one is clear the runway and build the ramp. Number two is delivery over purity. Number three is co-pilots over experts. Number four is autonomy over prescription. And number five is end-to-end always. So I can kick you off of the first one if you want. Yeah, let's, let's talk about clear the runway and building that ramp. What do you mean by that? So let me split it into two parts. So clear the runway. So as Jason said, our hope was, yeah, to validate ideas as quickly as possible. Um, so yeah, pace was super important here. And this meant the, the team formed of loads of enthusiasm and energy. And we intended to go deep into work really quickly. Um, to enable this, the business placed some really senior staff members in the team who some had been here for over four years. So we thought, you know, with all of their context and domain knowledge and expertise, we could move as fast as possible. However, we kind of forgot to take into account that those folks were the ones that were often called upon by many different teams and squads. They were involved in planning lots of bigger strategic work. They were also the first point of call for firefighting. They did performance reviews and managed people. So as you can imagine, their calendars were often pretty unforgiving. Um, And also because some of them had been here a while, you know, they were due for promotions or had new opportunities on the horizon. So there was a bit of movement in the team. So I think our kind of key learning from that was to clear the runway. So free up those people beforehand if you can, you know, really take into account what their commitments are, what their calendars are. Um, and also consider if this person is likely to remain in the role for the for the mid to long term. Uh, maybe they're due um, a promotion or something. So, yeah, keep that in mind. I guess this goes back to kind of ring fencing that time off so you can actually get dedicated time from people that could be incredibly busy. But say, hey, look, it's only six weeks. What arm can that do? Exactly. Exactly that. And also, yeah, maybe set expectations with the wider business about whether this person is, you know, that interruptible engineer anymore if their head's down all the time and so on. Awesome. So that was the first part. Um, so the second part is build the ramp. So by this, we mean, um, basically this was the first time that we'd ever done anything like this. And we, so we didn't quite have a tried and tested plan for, you know, what happens once this feature is validated or we think we've got a signal of product market fit does this innovation team continue to own it and maintain the code and the user experience or do we pass it on to another squad and we pick up the next thing, you know, the next big bet and try and validate that. So we refer to this as the kind of handing over process and we call it off ramping. Um, So since this, we figured out a bit of a kind of decision tree, a bit of a playbook whereby when you start a piece of work, um, the business is all aligned at the beginning on whether what we're doing is a proof of concept that we then need to later off-ramp or whether this is an MVP that we want to maintain later. Um, And this playbook now has guidelines on who you loop in and when, how to prepare that kind of off-ramping process um, and so on. So I think the biggest takeaway was, you know, agree on this approach upfront and get those conditions agreed upon and understood so everyone knows what's happening next. And does that playbook include um what you would measure to deem the feature a success and something you want to take forward um I think it attempts to in places but I would say that it's it's quite broad um just because depending on what it is you're building yeah you'll be looking for different signals for validation 
Um, but so it would be part of the process. You would think about that. You know, what signals are you looking for? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. From experience, I've been in places where we actually forgot to even think about that, and you come and finish something. Right. It's like, well, is it successful? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so yeah, a really great question to try and walk away with, and. Um, I think this goes out to Boyle, who's actually not on this call today, but um, Boyle's one of our product managers. He's now running the Moonshots team. And um, what they try to do now when they build a new feature or offering for the customer, um, they let them play with it as soon as possible. And then they ask them, and then they ask them the question, like, how would you feel if we took this away? You know, if this no longer existed? And the response to that really helps you determine if you've already got product market fit. Uh, because even if this thing still needs so many more bells and whistles to be, you know, really, really usable, just if the concept of it alone is something that you'd be sad to lose because it makes life easier or better for you, then that's already a really good signal for product market fit. So that's that's one of the ways you could measure this that's a kind of a bit more qualitative. That is such a beautifully simple question and so effective. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Should we go on to the next principle then, which I believe is delivery over purity? Uh, Jason. Thanks, Leon. So, yeah, we touched earlier on the importance of of keeping it lean and validating and pace, but we use this section to just dig a bit deeper um, into what we mean by that. So echoing a little bit where Hayley was just now, when we first started video cards, it was never the intention to get this this perfect product. Video cards sounds like an awesome idea. It feels excited, but ultimately we're not sure that this is something our customers really wanted or would even take to. So we needed to validate this. Now we needed to get these ideas out in front of real people to get their feedback. So what we did to help get this feedback was look to create a few different proof of concepts where our speed of delivery was our driving focus. So by trying to get it out quickly, it meant we needed to keep it as lean as possible. We had a few different ways of doing this. And a lot of these we learned as we went along and sort of we adapted um, when we realized we could make it a little bit quicker. So a bit of context into the team at the time, we're multifunctional. We have among our management uh, group, we have designers and engineers working side by side. So for most product delivery teams, when you're building a typical feature, you have your designers that create their designs and ultimately once they're done, they're handed over to engineers and the engineers build them. Because we were working so lean, we didn't have that luxury. We had our engineers building, we had our designers designing at the same time. Um, Now, by us going for a proof of concept, we actually found this worked pretty well. We were able to design only the bits that were necessary to complete a very simple uh, journey through our application. We found that lo-fi designs were enough just to get us underway. The whole team was involved in conversations about what these designs could look like. So engineers could share any immediate thoughts um, at that point. And because the code base was lean, because we were only building only what was needed, it was really cheap to change. And we did that a lot. The vision overall didn't change, but maybe we'd learned something um, or we wanted to try something a little bit different. And this allowed us to make quite quick iterative changes. Later on, once the value of the product had been established and we started thinking what the longer term looked like, the designers would then be able to focus on the high fidelity designs and the engineers could start looking at what the architecture would look like. 
by working lean, we also found that we were inspiring mess in the code base. So we had some non-negotiable, some safety measures that we had to keep in place. But crucially, we weren't investing effort to build the robust, scalable software for the long term um, because we didn't know ultimately if it was going to hang around. Instead, we were just trying to focus on only what was immediately necessary to validate the proof of concept. And coming from a, a pure product delivery um, background, that took some going over. And trying to bring it right back down to say, is this enough? Are we sort of breaking our scope? That took a lot of constant questions and challenges to each other. Um, with what we delivered, if the customer feedback wasn't what we were looking for, we'll park it and we'll try something a little bit different. And again, by doing this in a, a lean way, we've reduced our cost of failure. Now, all this said, it's much easier to do this on a, a greenfield solution where we can silo everything away. Video cards, however, were set up to work on the main Moonpig website. Um, and that meant it did such some existing services and products that, that we already had. So in those cases, when we were tweaking an existing service, more caution was required and, and we needed a lot more communication with the teams that were responsible. Understandably, questions were asked like, what are we going to be changing? Uh, what the impact's going to be? And ultimately, when are we going to remove what we're adding? Cool. It's really interesting the detail you went into there. That, that to my mind, that kind of is the way a lot of practitioners of iterative software delivery actually talk about, you know, doing the minimum amount that will get you some feedback and then iterating on that. Um, it'd be interesting moving forward if you took any of these leading learnings into your product development stuff and the trade-off between writing something to get that immediate feedback and making sure it's scalable and that kind of thing. So that's that's all fascinating stuff. And it'd be interesting to touch base with you in a few months' time, maybe another podcast to see whether you've taken any of those learnings to a more product-focused team. Absolutely. And, and it's one of the things that we constantly had to challenge ourselves on as well. I think we as engineers, we we can't help but naturally think about the longer term. One, one of the key learnings I'd, I'd say that, that we took away from this and something that we've really aspired to, to use in, in future initiatives is trying to avoid thinking about the long term. We like planning for it. We have a habit, a conscious habit, of, of, of a subconscious habit of doing it, that even though we're trying to build it lean, in the back of the mind, there's the thoughts of how could this transform to a product in the long term? Now, by thinking about this in the back of the mind, it naturally slows you down. So one thing that our team discussed and, and we've really tried to put into place for future initiatives is to agree at the beginning to have a 100% commitment at the start of a project that says everything we write, we're going to throw away. No long term thoughts no long-term planning, just a pure focus to validate our proof of concept idea. And if we want to build it again for the long-term, that's awesome, but we go again from scratch to build it properly. So it's kind of taking the spike concept to, to the extreme, isn't it? It's kind of like, right, we're going to be building something to validate, see whether it works, how difficult it would be to build, and then throw it away and, and start again and, dare I say, do it properly based on the learnings and, and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And by doing it that way as well, we've reduced our cost of failure. If we did need to pivot because the customer feedback wasn't what we were looking for, it's, yeah. it's the cheapest way to do it. Absolutely. And no one can blame you or no one can be cross with you if you haven't spent much money, which is always good. Awesome. Right. So our next principle 
is um how did you put it co-pilots over experts yeah that's right um so yeah co-pilots over experts and this is really all about bringing your fellow team members in on everything can you kind of navigate everything together as opposed to working in a silo and you know maybe being a little bit guarded about your your expertise in your area um, and this is why Jason's an absolute dream to work with he's so easy to collaborate with and we take each other on, on the journey um, so yeah historically designers you know we usually kind of work in a bit of an isolated role particularly when it comes to running discovery and synthesizing research and the downside of that is that the engineers in your team and other people in your team don't feel as close to what they're working on. And I often find that a problem when you're trying to prioritize work. Um, it's very easy to keep descoping things that the designer feels are really important because maybe I've sat through 30 user tests and the same thing keeps coming up that's important. But if five engineers in my team haven't been through that experience, they might keep descoping stuff because they don't really feel innately you know what the value of it is without without being on that journey as one example so one of the things that I did was I'd make a really conscious effort every single day to share daily um, the work I was doing the progress with it but more importantly than that I'd invite Jason and the other engineers and people in our team to join me in coming up with hypotheses to test um, so we kind of co-write those together. They'd even help me word my kind of discussion guides for user testing and sit in on those with me and take notes or sometimes even ask questions. And then we'd later synthesize all of that together and ideate together. Um, so they were involved at every step of the process and it was excellent. And it meant we, we moved really fast. And we also were able to approach everything from a different angle so it kind of removed our own biases from uh, what we were seeing so that was just awesome for us um so yeah I guess my advice to other people out there and particularly product designers is do take your team on the journey and they might surprise you they might be a lot more willing to join in user testing and other things like that than you might think they are and I think the kind of top tip for that is just make it as easy as possible so for me, Miro had, was kind of a new tool at the time. I know everyone knows and loves it now, but at the time it was new. So I create lots of Miro boards where people could just quickly jump in and take notes when we were doing user testing or quickly ideate in there. And um, yeah, as long as it was easy, people would take part and it was really, really powerful for us. And again, again, this is just is just really good teamwork I'm seeing coming through here while we talk, you know, that, that concept of whole team, Everyone has got a contribution to make, no matter what it is. Dare I ask, Hayley, did they let you code at all? <laughs> I think, I imagine that I would have been invited to had I uh, had I asked. But I think it's best for everyone if I stay away from the code base. <laughs> <laughs> Though I can give you some examples, actually, of there were a few assumptions that we all came up with as a team that we later went on to valid uh, user testing. Should I share what some of those were? That'd be cool. Yeah, please. So, um, so we do, yeah, a process called assumption mapping, where you basically walk through the designs and you annotate uh, what you think must be true or false for the user to continue. So one example is at the top of the landing page for video cards, we had a still image of some uh, someone holding a phone that had a video playing inside it of someone else's face. And our assumption was that, you know, the viewer understands that this is a video uh, being played inside the phone. And actually, 
when we user tested it, that was not understood. And actually at a glance, most people thought that we were showing them a FaceTime call. So they weren't understanding what this feature was at all. Uh, that's just one example. The other was that for video cards, we actually need a QR code to uh, launch the video. So you get a card in the post, you open it. There's a little piece of design inside that contains a QR code. You scan it and then you get you can play the video. One of our assumptions was that this wouldn't be like there'd be a low sentiment around it because we were kind of just out of COVID times and QR codes were heavily associated with that dark time in all our lives. So actually it wouldn't be very, you know, taken positively, but we were wrong, um, which was really good for us um, because, yeah, we rely on QR codes quite heavily for this feature. Uh, we didn't think that people would use video cards for Valentine's Day, which is one of our major peaks as a business, because we thought, why would you send your husband, your wife or your loved one a video? You see them all the time. How awkward that you'd you know, send them a video to see and open it in the house. But we were wrong. Customers absolutely love this feature and they love it just as much on Valentine's Day as others. Um, so there's a long list of assumptions like that that we managed to prove out over time. Um, we did one quite cool thing. We did some guerrilla testing. Uh, that Jason and others got involved in where we'd actually very quickly prototype something. So it could be a design in the app. So actual part of the UX or a design in the physical card itself that the recipient gets. And we take it to the streets of Lever Lane. And when people were queuing up for their lunch and had nowhere to run, we would approach them and we would ask them um, to open this card for us and give us their feedback. So we call that guerrilla testing. And we meant we could very quickly within the space of an hour you know, interact with like 20 people and get their raw response and see if they understood what was going on and what the sentiment was towards it. So that was great. There's some really nice techniques you described in there, Haley. I think the assumption mapping and the guerrilla testing, I think all things people could take away from this and do a bit of digging themselves and try try them out, that's awesome. Right, should we have another principle? Uh, Jason, have you got one? I certainly do. So our fourth principle is autonomy over prescription. So we touched on a little bit about the makeup of the team. We, we mentioned earlier how it was multifunctional and, and Haley's um, done some discussions, uh, mentioned some bits about that as well. Um, what we haven't covered, however, is the majority of us all joined Moonpig at roughly the same time. And the team was also formed at that point. Because of this, at least initially, we had no hard requirements for what we were looking to do with video cards. What we did now, however, was what the long-term goal was, and we were all bought into that vision. Haley mentioned earlier about guerrilla testing. I'd never even heard of it before Haley introduced me to this. And so we were all, as a collaborative, equally invested in, in sort of seeing this succeed. So with that in mind, we had only, at the time, we only had two engineers in the team. We were both new in. Neither of us had any experience working with videos. So... As we're doing video cards, it kind of felt like something that we're going to need to understand. So we had to dig a bit deeper into, into what that meant. What we instilled in the team was an autonomy to research and experiment new ideas. And it was through this that we were able to understand what challenges we were likely to face. And crucially, what questions do we need to be asking ourselves? So... Leo, me and you could have a chat now about media codecs and containers, or should we be doing streaming or progressive downloading? Uh, but all well, that's well and good now. At the time, we didn't know what these things were or if these are things that we even need to consider. So the freedom to research at first meant that not only did we understand it better, we didn't run into these problems when we were trying to actively build these proof of concepts. What we found that everyone in the team had was a mandate to innovate, 
push boundaries and, and just try something a little bit new or, or different. And because we all knew the long-term vision, everything that the team investigated was relevant to the long-term goal. And as a team, we tried our best to stay in frequent contact. Like most agile teams, we've got our stand-ups in the mornings and we have plenty of ad hoc conversations um, throughout the course of the day to share knowledge and thoughts. So just a, a final note that I wanted to, to add on this one was that we wanted to make sure that as a team, we weren't limiting our vision. So we, we mentioned the long-term goal of, of video cards and we knew what we were looking to achieve, but we also wanted to make sure that anything that could also be thought of that was outside the box to improve the quality of the product could be investigated. So we set ourselves a dedicated day every two weeks where we could try innovating or learning something that was a bit different to our immediate focus um, and this let us try new things or, or learn new skills ultimately with a view to help improving video cards and, and take it to the next level so that sounds like a vision of what the feature is what the goal of the team is actually is so important to sort of unify you all and all think in the same direction and again i, I keep coming back to but the quality of teamwork that i'm getting the sense of in this it is phenomenal um okay um so the final principle that we have is end-to-end -end always yeah Hayley, what does end-to-end -end always mean uh it means thinking end-to-end -end about the whole customer experience um and by that i i'm talking about everything from the ux marketing and beyond so some of you will know, build it and they will come is not a viable launch strategy when you are launching a new feature, sadly. Um, and at the point of release of video cards, it happened to be Christmas, which is one of the business's biggest peaks, as you can imagine, being in the card industry. Um, and, you know, the amazing people in the trading and commercial marketing teams, they plan months in advance because, you know, it's quite predictable when our peaks are going to be. Um and because we had just recently worked on this feature and got it live, we didn't have a pre-agreed spot in the in the trading and comms plan, you know, to really market this new feature. Um, however, we suspected that the customer kind of really needs to plan to make video content. You don't want to be caught um, on the spot, you know. It's something you might want to arrive knowing you're going to do when you're sending a card. So the awareness stage of the user journey was really important for us um to you know to be able to communicate that we have this thing that you should be prepared to do so yeah getting product marketing assets in alignment it, we, we rushed it and it was really tough um in that such in that really busy period but we did manage to get um a mention over christmas and this just really shows how important it is to get aligned because when the team were able to talk about video cards quite high up in one of our monthly newsletters uh, we doubled the uptake of video cards in the following days. Um, so it was just super valuable for us. And again, it validated that we do need to talk about it more in the awareness stage and that customers really appreciate that heads up. Um, so the result of this learning was that we needed something to get us all aligned earlier so that product teams could get awareness of their feature and involve all the right people at the right time. So me and a small team worked on something that we call the product marketing playbook. And this is kind of a series of steps that are interactive, all in a mirror board that you can walk through as a much wider team um, so that you can yeah, involve the right people at the right stage and get planning. Um, and I'll very quickly talk you through what those what those stages are. So these are the hero stages, not all the sub stages, but the first bit is to get aligned and define the teams and the roles. 
So this is really talking about, this is kind of doing your elevator pitch to everyone else about why you're working on this, why it's important, what OKR it's going to move and why you believe that's true. What, what backing have you got? What's your business case? The next bit is co-building a vision. So you can kind of walk each other through your competitor analysis um, and do a really cool exercise, which we've borrowed from Amazon, which is actually an Amazon press release exercise. So my understanding is that Amazon, they spend months on this, but I found an AI tool that helps you do it in seconds. Um, and effectively what you do before you write any code or build anything, you go onto there's I'll tell you what it is. It's called Black Cube, though I'm sure ChatGPT does this too now. Um, you basically fill in a template and you write a future press release for this feature that you're thinking of building. Um, and you just give it some prompts, so a heading and a quick summary, what problem it solves and who it's for. And it generates a press release for you. Um, and that becomes a bit of a starting point for, you know, your content design and understanding what you want to do. And the team can edit that together and really get alignment about what this thing is and how you're going to talk about it and the value it brings to the customer. And then the next step is testing your core assumptions and really early. So we then work on something called the five second sales pitch, where the challenge is we ask you to come up with a title, a tagline and a quick sketch of the thing that you're going to build. And then you come up with a few different variants and you show it to customers for five seconds, then hide it. And you're really trying to understand what they took away from it and how well, how good your content design is and what they've understood. Um, and that then gives you um, a really good starting point for, um, for the work and the vision and the, and the content strategy. Um, and then you move into road mapping and doing key dates together put together your go-to-market strategy as a team, uh, doing a kind of demo walkthrough as a team, and then reviewing the end-to-end -end user journey and getting early feedback from all your big stakeholders. Um, and this bit's really important. When there's so many teams and you work for a company as big as us, I'm sure other people will know, you know, the touch points that a user goes through, there's many of them and they can all look slightly different, feel slightly different and not tell the same story. So laying them all out side by side and really seeing the user journey end to end is just such a good exercise for alignment. Um, yeah, and then you can reflect on your key learnings at the end and kind of have a bit of a retro for the next time that you do this. That's really cool. Uh, there's so much good stuff you describe in that playbook. Um, are teams still using it? What kind of feedback have you got when you introduced it? The feedback's been really positive. If I'm being honest, the uptake's still low. So like with anything, build it and they will come is not a strategy. So I, I need to market the thing to market. Um, so I'm doing some more work to, to grow the engagement with this playbook. And um, even I think next week, we've got another session on this to kind of bring it back into focus for all the teams and encourage a bit more engagement. So yeah, you have to keep peddling these things. Absolutely. And you're describing a lot of things that in my side hustle as a coach, I kind of bring try to bring to teams anyway so we should talk <laughs> okay thank you so much for that uh, i'm going to give you both the opportunity now just to summarize the five key principles again so number one is clear the runway and build the ramp and that's all about setting your team up for success and making sure that they have the capacity to pick up this work and you know up front who's doing what, whether it's a proof of concept or an MVP and who you need to work with and how you're going to work with them.
Number two is delivery over purity, which is a focus on keeping things as lean as possible to get it out in front of real people to get their feedback as fast as possible. Amazing. Number three is co-pilots over experts. That's about being vulnerable, being open with your team, bringing them on the journey, giving them visibility, removing your bias as you work and moving really fast. Number four is autonomy over prescription, which was a focus about getting the entire team bought into the vision so that they can feel they've got the mandate to change design, engineer and, and build things that they think are relevant to achieving that goal. Number five is end to end always. And this is really thinking about your whole product marketing and go to market strategy um, alongside all the delivery work to really make sure that it's a success and that you get the uptake that you deserve. Right. Thank you so much. I thought there were some really interesting insights there. And thank you so much, Hayley and Jason, for sharing that with us. Well, that's another pod wrapped up. Um, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, we're here every month. So take care. See you soon. Move.